I always use frameworks, which you can see I did in the workshop too, because it allows your mind to make sense of what you're thinking about what I'm doing, not take notes. I don't talk without graphics. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a much more important process. And I've done it with my children since they were tiny. When they were six years old, I asked them to take on something they like to be responsible for in the household. And by nine, it was a big responsibility. My daughter took on paying our bills at nine years old. average CEO reads 60 books per year, and many attribute their success to this habit of constant learning. This is the difference between those who actualize and those who fail. This automization of their learning, this 1% better every day. On the MentorBox podcast, we're making it easy for you to build and maintain that same habit, the same type of constant lifelong learning as those CEOs, simply by listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and tune in for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and every Friday. And if you want to dig deeper into what our incredible guests teach, make sure to go to mentorbox.com and become a member today. Everyone, welcome to the MentorBox Podcast. You are listening because you are a person of action. But action, of course, must be supported by deep knowledge. Education is a deliberate, lifelong pursuit, and you know that the fastest, most effective way to learn is from the masters themselves. By harnessing the power of the world's top innovators and thought leaders, you too can effect positive change for your community, business, and the world at large. That's why today we're speaking with Carol Sanford. Carol is an author, speaker, and executive educator who has set out to reformulate how corporations and business people think of their human capital. Hint, hint, we won't really be using that word much. Her newest book, The Regenerative Business, offers anecdotes and strategies to help leaders encourage company growth and cultural impact by emphasizing employees as human individuals. Each person has their own strengths and weaknesses, but it's their unique life story that determines how these characteristics come out in the workplace. We analyze the driving culture of thought that has led to major business failures and even scandals, and Carol explains exactly what she's doing to change all that. You're going to learn a lot from this one, I promise. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Mentor Box podcast. I'm Tyler, your content coordinator, and today I'm here with Carol Sanford, author of The Regenerative Business. Carol, thank you so much for being here. Great fun. I'm enjoying it. Awesome. We just did a full workshop um, doing three different videos on that one book, Regenerative Business, and one on her other book as well. What was the title of that one? The Responsible Entrepreneur. That's right. And you've There's written even a couple books. others. Right. I've written several others, but one more still in print, The, re okay. the Responsible Business. And can you tell us about those and also just more about your background? Yeah, well, my books and my background are kind of overlapping because uh, I'm not a researcher. I'm not a journalist. I live side by side with all these stories. And so these, the regenerative business is the one that's still in print that tells most of how it is you run a business in an ecosystem in a reciprocity way. So you mm -hmm. really make sure you're working with your customers in the market in a way that's really alive and fits them in, in the essence of you, who you are. Same with the what I call co-creators. I hate the term employees because that just already puts 
put you in a box. Yeah. But if you're co-creating something for those uh, customers in a market, you're in a different place. Then you ask, how do we do that in cooperation with Earth so that it's healthy, mm-hmm. with communities so we grow them, and so the people who choose to invest in us and need some kind of enduring return get that back. So that book is about that ecosystem and how it is that you have an investment for each of those, a return on investment for each of those, mm-hmm. and how you manage to design a business so all that is cared for. That's why it's called the responsible business. Mm-hmm. The responsible entrepreneur is a whole different cut on that, but it's looking at responsibility again, how you take care of the ecosystem, but how it is you think about leadership more, how is you lead in a way, and I don't hold leadership as a hierarchical thing. This can be you leading a soccer team of kids in your neighborhood or, or a family thing, but in a business, how is it that you use some higher wisdom in the moment to help guide you? And I draw four ancient archetypes that I learned from my grandfather, who's descendant of Mohawk, uh, mm-hmm. and learning how you rebuild a tribe. And so it takes those four archetypes, which are not like the union archetypes. They're more like a warrior, a hunter, a clown, mm-hmm. and a headman, and how you use those as wisdom sources to be a thinking partner for you. Now, how I got to all that, so saying who I am, yep. I have been an educator. I'm not a consultant. I don't believe in that I should impose anything on anybody. Uh, I'm not a mentor. I'm not a coach. I don't train people. What I do is educate people in thinking processes. And then I ask them to assess themselves, to learn to grow and think that way. I do this in universities. I do it inside corporate settings. I do it in private groups and communities who join me in membership communities over decades that they work with me. And with businesses who cluster in a community and they work together with me and my team over a very long period the time. So it's, uh, I have a lot of longevity built into this. And these books are full of the stories of the tr- transformation people have created in industries and in social systems and cultural paradigms and in governing. So that's a little bit about who I am. The word paradigm and transformation, those have come up a lot today. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things that we encountered in your workshop, which was my favorite thing was you discussed the use of rats as almost precedence to studying humans themselves or as evidence of certain things within humans themselves. And you use that as a sort of example of one point in a series of paradigm shifts in in the way we think about work. Yeah, so... This is really, really important because, well, first, I studied with Thomas Kuhn, who came up with this idea of paradigm shift mm-hmm. uh, when I was at Berkeley. And it it's like one of those things when I walked in, it knocked my so- socks off and changed my life forever. Yeah, yeah. That there could be many different ways you looked at something. We always think that whatever eyes we're looking through, whatever mind we've got at work is the only way to see it. I discovered with him and then began to build the capacity of others to see it, that there are different eras in which we have adopted different worldviews, literally a different way to see it from a different paradigm. And the oldest one is the aristocracy, which we talked about. So we still think like kings are in charge and there's some that are smarter and probably ordained by God to be in those roles. And then there was the industrial era, which got us all thinking that all humans are the same as a clock or as a steam engine, uh, as an artificial intelligence. But the one that probably as you're speaking to, and is still very pervasive, was uh, invented by a guy named John Watson, who I think he's a psychologist at Johns Hopkins. And he went to the big guys and he said, all right, you guys are having trouble. You can manage the machine, but not the people. I'll make you a deal. You give me money to set up this lab and I will study people and let you be able to manipulate and manage them just like you can the machine. Now you think they were going to say no to that. Mm -hmm. They gave him what would now be billions of dollars, millions of dollars to set up the lab. 
And out of it came the psychological theory of behavior. Yeah. But it was all based on the study of rats. And it's only applicable if you're working with rats because rats don't have frontal lobes. They can't project something into the future. They're just missing most of the things. But it is seen as the psychology. There's behavioral economics, there's behavioral parenting, uh, all of it based on the study of rats. So that's why I talk a lot about it and try and get people to shift to a more, not even human-centered, because that was the next evolution, but to a living system-centered and understand we all work together. Yeah, and the reason I, I'm so interested in you know the rats in particular is because I, I didn't study psychology myself, but I was so excited when you told me that you have a PhD in psychology. I didn't realize that that's where you kind of went terminal with your degrees. Um, like went terminal. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's where you took it, the very top. I threw most of that out. Yes, right. Yeah, um, but you've also, you know, worked so robustly in other spheres, you know, business, marketing. It, it's all in there, essentially. And I, I like that you have that um, interdisciplinary, but not interdisciplinary. And I think you are shifting that paradigm to think of it in a different way about how you're studying across these systems and how we should be applying the principles of psychology and the principles of humanity to how we function and operate within businesses. But I do want to talk about psychology today because I think it okay. it expands to everything. I mean, and you apply a lot of this stuff in your book to just, you know, having a happy life and family life and social life and all of those things as well. And as I mentioned in other podcasts, my past um, position was sales of textbooks. And I worked with a lot of psychologists and I sold, you know, personality psychology, textbook, textbook, social psych, intro psych. And a lot of it is based on research that's very that's done by a homogeneous population on a homogeneous population. All the same people were involved in the creation of you know what should be and what was studied in psychology. And am I understanding right that that's sort of an idea of a paradigm that was established yeah. within that sphere? Yeah, so uh, I am not a fan of most of modern psychology. I, okay. Uh, pop psychology, I think most of it was studied with the paradigm in mind of the behavioralist. Now, the yes. behavioralist yes. didn't care about whether you had the right diversity in your study mm -hmm. or whether you actually noticed that the culture of one people you're studying is radically different than another or none of those things were taken into account. You and, and I are very aligned in this. Right, thing. right. So <laughs> most of it ended up being very white males studying white males. Yeah. Uh, and not not with consciousness, because there's some white males that are doing great stuff. But if of you course. don't bring consciousness to the kind of paradigm and the way you're looking at it, you're in trouble. In fact, the uh, dissertation that I worked on was studying scientists, because okay. I believe the psychology of the scientists studying psychology was where the greatest error came. Yeah, and yeah. not being able to... So I developed a method which we tested, which was having people, some, some of them be able to track through journals what were the beliefs they were holding about certain things. And first, it was shocking to all the people who were involved in it that they actually had really strong beliefs and weren't being neutral, mm -hmm. and they were designing their studies based on that. And so I think you're... What you're seeing is absolutely right, but it's because of the lack of education yes. or even considering that the researcher themselves is probably the reason we get the answers we do, which may have nothing to do with reality. Yeah, I, the researcher themselves. And then also, I sometimes am curious about the the process of, of scientific research itself and you know, yep. the scientific process and whether that can be truly accepted as just an a base of truth, as a basis mm -hmm. of truth establishment, because, you know, it has a series of steps, but at the end of the day, somebody is choosing what fits within those steps. And yeah. I've looked up different 
concepts and, and terms that fit within psychology. Again, I didn't study it, but reification is one thing right. that comes up a lot. And yep. the decision that one idea can be like numerically or qualitatively slash quantitatively understood. And I think The Bell Jar and The Mismeasure of Man are two books that kind of debate sure. intelligence sure. and how you measure you know, intelligence and what value that should have within people. And I think it's it's clear to see that these abstract ideas have sometimes been almost abused in, in research and then extrapolated by, you know, the public to think about people in well, certain I ways. Think, so I, I'm trying to be a little gracious. I mean, first, I'm not a licensed psychologist anymore, sure. so I don't go around analyzing people. <laughs> but I do believe that a lot of it comes from ignorance. We, in no discipline that I know of, and one of the reasons I've studied urban planning and economics and public law and all the things I've gotten degrees in, in addition to psychology, was I felt like that my own worldview after I met Thomas Kuhn just constantly was too small. No one educated me about that, that the way I was seeing the world wasn't the only way to see it. And therefore, when I saw other people, I could immediately make them wrong because they weren't seeing through my eyes. Mm -hmm. So I think that when you think about scientists in general, and I'm writing a book right now on the uh, what I'm calling the siren's call of neuropsychology. Okay. Right, where people are so excited because if it's neuropsychology, you're seeing the brain. Oh no, then it must be true. Yeah. Well, there there are three places that so far I've identified that we get in trouble with our reification, which means the paradigm we're holding that we make true no matter what we see. The first is formulating the study. Mm-hmm. Right, so we figure out what we're going to work on, and we can't even understand. We've cut out all sorts of things. We've formulated it based on one of the paradigms or one of the worldviews that you know have to do with whether it's from the industrial era, the rat study, or human mm-hmm. or ecosystem. The second place is design. So now they design how they're going to do it. They do yes. the assessment. And third place is interpretation. And you quickly hit all three of those because I am not only figuring out what I'm going to study and through one paradigm that looks true to me without noticing that I have picked something and already excluded other things. And then the design and conducting of the study, I can't see that I hear certain things. I exclude other things. And then my interpretation. So in neuroscience, I'm watching the groups like the Neuro Leadership Institute put out things and I'm watching people adopt it like crazy, which is really still behavioral. Mm -hmm. And they cannot see they're studying the brain with behavior. Now they say they're not, but you watch them over and over again and the process they're using because they're not observing. They don't have a scientific, a a researcher's rigor and the journaling process that I insist all the people who work with me do. Mm -hmm. You become conscious while you're working on something. You still end up with what you're talking about, this reification of a paradigm that limits blocks and creates a pre-digested answer that I had before I started, but I can't see it. Maybe varied a little. So we're still stuck in some sort of a paradigm. This, I feel like this is getting very sort of meta in a lot of ways. Right, but... I'm a little worried about it. Is it too intellectual? But go ahead. Um, you know, like I, I feel that because of the way that research and science is di- is disseminated and digested today, yeah. you know, you mentioned like pop psychology and that sort of thing. I mean, on social media and on just all the news sites that are out there, the smaller just online publications, a lot of those love to put out studies and, yeah. you know, manipulate the headlines yeah. in some ways, like Ugh. clickbait. And that, like, I think most people understand that's dangerous and they kind of just, anybody who circulates those kind of does it jokingly, like, hey, look, this study says if you're messy, you're probably a smarter person, like, right. LOL. They they kind of, like, shrug it off, but it also gets passed around right. more. 
And I feel that in a way it is getting consumed and internalized by people. Well, the big thing is there's no reflection and no questioning. And I don't even think you can do it. It's like even if you're passing along one of these studies and you you can even add, you know, does this fit you and people reject or not? To me, that's why I say I'm an educator, not a consultant, because I'm educating the mind that can be discerning. The underpinnings of the core of my work is discernment, Mm -hmm. the ability to see how I'm seeing, see how other positioning. So I can't read a paper without determining what paradigm was written from. I can't read a book with, I can't listen to you. I can't listen to anybody talk, but I'm hearing the paradigm they're speaking through. I can't hear me saying something and tell whether I just slipped into another paradigm. Mm -hmm. I want every human being on the planet to be able to do that, Mm -hmm. to be able to notice their own prefixed, formulated mind and be able to switch between minds. I called it mindsets in the workshop we did today. But if we can't, if we've got a fixed paradigm, that's how we're going to see things. So I believe that's the answer to the concern you have. And I have, I mean, we share that concern. Yeah, absolutely. Is we have to educate people to have a mind to see that they're in one of four paradigms or five worldviews or three mindsets. I just, I use them all to try and help educate people to see. Mm -hmm. I think about these a lot as, in terms of political parties sometimes too, and in terms of just generations. I feel like you you can break it down in a lot of ways, but it crosses a lot of those borders. And at the end of the day, I think it's most important to to think about the sort of paradigm that, that you're suggesting, which is the living systems. Does that extrapolate beyond, you know, the, the business setting? Is oh, yeah. this is No, I, uh, I have people in my group who work in, use all of the stuff I teach, in, teach, that's not the right word, uh, <laughs> engage people with. Yeah. Uh, they use it in schools, down to lower classrooms. I've got professors from Penn State, from MIT, from mm-hmm. Stanford, all of whom are using a classroom. I have people that's who right. are using it in community development, a community of group called Regenesis Group, who does it all with community development and finding the story of a place. All of the ideas, as I said earlier, are holographic. So I chose business as the primary path, although I've done economic development. I built co-ops. I built ESOPs, you know, employee-owned businesses so that there are other alternatives. But I chose business, and I chose a combination of entrepreneurs and large businesses like Google and DuPont and Colgate and P&G because I felt like that they already have so much influence that if we could move them, we could move the world faster. For me, it was a nodal question. Where would I intervene? And I decided the other place I would intervene is parenting because how we raise children. And I used to run a television program. Oh, my God, this was so long ago called Healthy Family Dynamics. And it was using. So you kind of did already try to intervene there, or you? Did I did, intervene right? Yeah. Well, and and I had a group of people. We did six sessions. It became six. It was a cable television in Southern Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the idea was to take these teaching the power of thinking to kids as they grow up and teaching them. And you do it by teaching them to question you as a parent, which is really hard. <laughs> it's hard for parents. But I did it with my kids. I told them, yeah. said, don't accept anything I tell you unless you understand it. Mm-hmm. I can, don't allow me to ever say to you, I'm the mother yep. uh, or I'm the father. Um, that we have to sit and talk. And my kids are phenomenal thinkers. I mean, they are rigorous. They went to, you know, 
UC Berkeley and Swarthmore College where that was continued. And I believe that's the thing that's missing for why we have the political problems we have right now, why we have, I think, democracy being undermined. By the way, this new book, The, the Regenerative Business, also talks about why what's in there is necessary for democracy to work. Uh, and so if we don't do this kind of building the capacity of the mind to discern where things are coming from, whatever doesn't agree with us looks like fake news. Yeah. And it is. It's fake because it doesn't fit my worldview. So, And I watch it on both, all multiple sides, although there are two primary ones. And because you can't see how the other is thinking and you don't create a shared worldview and you don't have to agree with each other, but just even have an idea that we could be in different places. I, don't, I worry that we even have a chance of making ever building back a democracy that can work. Hey, hate to interrupt this conversation with Carol Sanford, but I just wanted to let you know where you can learn more about her paradigm-shifting educational practices. We did a full workshop on the regenerative business, but as usual, she recorded that exclusively for MentorBox Online. To access the course plus tons more, go to MentorBox.com. All right, back to the show. What are the sort of concrete steps yeah. that we can take as a, as a culture, as a community, as a society to understand that we're thinking in paradigms and to Im implement that understanding and that self-awareness into our work, into our research, mm -hmm. into the things that we create. Because from my perspective and my background, the sort of interventions that I would make are within actually academia itself and do the same thing that you just re recommended with um, parenting, you know, have students question the instructors or have that be a more explicit yep. component. And that's critical pedagogy is already, it's already a discipline that kind of right. emphasizes that. And just thinking about what the institution of academia represents. Yeah. And then also like Hollywood and like media and oh, movies. Oh, right, right. Like oh, my God. Equally you, critical so of So how many that. days have you got for working on this one? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, the underpinning of everything is education. Yes. Uh, yes. And I have prepared tons of materials. I did... Um, a small video for impact investors and people were trying to invest to understand what regenerative thinking meant because people keep thinking it's about sustainability. You can't discern those kind of differences. I've done a similar thing. I've written papers on co-ops. There are four different kinds of co-ops and people think they're all Mondragon and they try and copy it. If you And so I think that having materials that are educating and letting people play with them. Mm -hmm. What we tend to do when we want to change a paradigm is we go try and convince them. Yeah, We yeah. become an advocate. I'm very guilty of We that. become a <laughs> proselytizer, right? We don't engage. So I don't ever work in a business saying, here, set up, do this. Here's how all things work. I build the capacity to think, and it takes usually about a year of starting to shift what they're thinking. And pretty soon, and you'll find stories in here, people are out working in the community in a different way. They're working with their families. So mm -hmm. I believe that until we have the education ourselves to understand how our own mind works, and then the capacity to help transfer some of that through whatever arena, whether it's being on a board of directors, because I sit on a not-for-profit also, and that's the foundation of what we're trying to do with communities. Mm -hmm. So for me, it is get yourself educated, and I've got so much free material, it can drive you crazy on yeah. those. I mean, in addition to books and more depth, but get on my mailing list and you'll get all sorts of advice and help on how to go build this discernment capacity for different paradigms. Mm -hmm. And anybody who tells me this was from MentorBox, I'll send you a free chapter that's not published yet oh. on the four paradigms, the five worldviews, and the seven first principles of how to think in a living systems view. Nice, throwing in a little deal there. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to talk more about education in this sense because there are so many sort of preconceived notions and just 
throwaways of what education means these days yeah. because we have education as an institution and we oh, have right. high school, we I'm have college and everything. This. And yeah. and that that's why I brought it up is I, you know, in that you kind of intervened in business. If I had, you know, the ability and ultimately I guess I do, I could go ahead and try to do this. And I have in some ways, but I think a lot and I study a lot about how education existed in, in its own paradigm and it was started by right. certain people for certain people. And it has since grown from that. But the understanding of what education means yep. in America is very fraught as a term itself. You know, some people just associate it with getting a certain degree so that you can then make money and right. live a happy life. Some people associate it with developing a critical consciousness, which I think is more along the lines of what you're talking about. Yeah. Some people just think about it as like acquiring skills so that you can better do something or yeah. anything. So I am talking about it as a process. Yes. Not an institution, yes. not as an end. And the word, if you, I love language. If you go look at language, it tells you a lot. So the word education mm -hmm. comes from the word ductile. Education, the, the duct in the middle. You know what duct tape does, right? It conducts yeah. energy. The word education literally means to draw out. It does not mean to cram in. And the way educational institutions have done is they now teach you something by putting it into you. To me, education is a process of drawing it out. Yeah. By, and it is the process of giving you frameworks like my four paradigms, five worldviews, et cetera. I always use frameworks, which you can see I did in the workshop too, because it allows your mind to make sense of what you're thinking about what I'm doing, not take notes. I don't talk without graphics. Mm -hmm. And I don't talk without giving ideas you can play with and say, here, go work on this. Yeah. To me, that's a much more important process. And I've done it with my children since they were tiny. I, When they were six years old, I asked them to take on something they'd like to be responsible for in the household. And by nine, it was a big responsibility. My daughter took on paying our bills at nine years old. And it was it, what she did is learn to think systemically. And she learned to ask questions about, well, where is this money going? Why does it matter? And I said, don't write a check. You don't understand why we're writing it. Mm -hmm. And she has, from the time she was nine years old, been a co-signer yeah. on all of my checks through the time she was a teenager. My son took on this feeding us. And he became, um, although he's a computer science guy, he runs his own company in technology and language learning. Yeah. He also majored in food chemistry because he wanted to know how we thought about food. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's putting people in situation and asking them questions. I always, for my kids mostly, I ask them questions. Mm -hmm. And I ask them questions not with an answer I wanted them to give, yeah, yeah. but with a thought I wanted them to generate. And okay. so that's to me education. Mm -hmm. It's a process uh, based on the root meaning of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think about parenting a lot, even though I'm only... I'm, I'm in my 20s and I'm not quite, you know, at that stage, but I think about how just wildly difficult it must be these days when, and I think of it from the frame of like, you know, divisive and aggressive and vicious politics, because yeah. that seems to have really impacted our culture, yeah. you know, at large. But I also just think of, you know, how to teach your kids these complex things, you know, uh -huh. this is, is it a debate and a conversation that is just ever growing or are people thinking from different paradigms, uh -huh. that sort of thing. Like, how do you teach a young child to think about that and right. then oh, there's grow an and this go through easy. education? This it's easy. It's easy. Okay. Uh, and what people do is they get afraid and they want to make sure they have the right answer as opposed to the right process. That's exactly thinking. how I feel. Even right, right. So we, you don't want to do that. What I have always believed with my kids, and politics have never been as bad as they are now, but they've always had 
some of this divisiveness. So I have for years taught my children by just taking any framework I have, including the one that we did today, where you look at, do people have a sense of personal responsibility? Do they care about others? And then can they exercise agency to bring about change? So I draw that little triangle. And I say, let's look at the arguments people are offering in this debate. You know, and we literally looked at presidential debates. Which of these are based on personal agency? Which of these are based on people having to have external control and internal cons- uh, and um, external considering internal locus of control? My kids could pretty quickly tell that what was happening is the Republicans were really attached to the idea of internal locus of control. Everybody ought to have it, yes. which we yes. be- I believe too. Everybody ought to have it. But the Democrats were attached to external considering. We should only primarily take care of other people, mm-hmm. and. What it did is not allow you to understand both of those are part of a triadic whole. Yes. But my kids could yes. see that from a young age. Now, the other thing you ask them when they start getting riled up, you ask, what are you putting in your own mind that makes you get upset about this? Mm-hmm. And how does that help you? Does it help you to get upset as you're looking at it? And that watching and determining how you're thinking and how it's influencing what you can do, those are the two skills we need, the discernment <laughs> of how people are thinking and the ability to watch ourselves and see how we infuse our own upset, our own prejudice, our own ability to reason and to discern because we have unexamined thinking in our own process. That's the scientist and the research, right? I think you'd be incredible as just a presidential debate, um, what are they called, moderator. I <laughs> think you, you could just stand up there and. No, I'd know. want to educate them. I would not be wanting to ask questions. But I'm saying that's what they need. At the end of yeah. the day, you'd, well, you'd make I'd, it all I'd better. I want to do it before they're allowed to get on stage. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, right. you get to teach them and, yeah. and coach them or whatever well, I do you that call with, it. <laughs> I do that with major Fortune 500 executives. Yeah, which is equally. And many of them are in more. government. If not, uh, uh, I worked with Chad Holliday, President, Chairman, CEO of DuPont Corporation, yeah, right. who helped found the UN Global Compact as a result of some of this, ended up sitting on Obama's Energy Commission. Um, So he has taken what he learned in business and he has transferred it out. So again, that's why I went to business uh, because I know that the kind of people who are ending up leading businesses often are leading other things. They're usually also parents. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, Right. And so for me, it was the pivotal, the nodal point that if I work there, as opposed to, now I've not worked directly with schools. I teach in schools, but I, I have often thought that that and working with parents were the three most notable business, parenting, and schooling. Yeah. Are I the three places to go. Absolutely work. agree. And businesses too, especially, we just worked with uh, Denise Yan, who is another um, author from Nicholas Brealey, who published your book. She wrote the book Fusion, and she talks a lot about um, Silicon Valley companies and you know, how combining or not combining, but fusing culture, company culture with brand identity is an effective way to keep everything in the same mindset, perhaps. And and they're kind of, it's, it's almost, I think, adjacent to this idea of unifying the paradigm or the mindset that everybody has. Well, it depends on which one you pick. See, I agree with that, that you can unify brand and culture, but then yeah. what paradigm are they from? Yeah, exactly. And that's usually unexamined. So for me, I talk about uh, individuals have an essence and they have a personality, mm-hmm. right? There is something that's at the heart deep of who Tyler is. Yeah. But you've also been conditioned by your parents, by society to have a certain personality. Oh, yeah. Businesses are the same way. 
way. Yeah. They have an essence. And I usually want to tie brand more to essence, less to personality. Mm -hmm. And I think personality is much more like the culture in an organization. So I think conceptually, I agree with Denise, yeah, yeah. but I think there's first, is it really the paradigm you want to be creating the culture from and the mm -hmm. brand from? You got to notice that, the discernment. Yeah. And then is it really the personality of the business or are you really tying it to where it was at its founding? What is its story? Yeah, and I think in a lot of cases, that's exactly how it goes is, and she's worked, you know, as an educator, maybe consultant, I think is the term that she actually uses, but she works with, she's worked with companies as big as Sony and um, right. others and, and been kind of like a, a brand, a leader of brand development. Sure. And with companies that are already so big, you know, there's only so much you can do to actually That's not true. alter the paradigm. That's not true. That's not true? Absolutely not true. <laughs> That's why I don't consult, because if you consult, okay. you can't. It's really hard to move things, but if you're educating people, they move themselves. Yeah. And they can move mountains. I mean, what we did in Colgate Palmolive in South Africa was fundamentally huge. And yeah. Mandela gave us an award for being able to actually change the mindset of what it meant. The Constitution required that within five years, the management structure of a company, especially a foreign company, but uh, any company had to reflect the racial population and mix of the country. Yeah. Now, right then, Colgate Palmolive was 95 percent white. Country is 95% black Africans. We in six months made that switch mm -hmm. and had 95% black Africans leading, many of whom did not have all the degrees you would have thought they needed. But as Stalios kept saying, these are just because they were not educated in the traditional system doesn't mean they're smart. They had to figure out how to survive through apartheid. Yeah. That process was, and of course, I did have a little advantage in that we're creating a new South Africa. So it's a little easier to create a switch, but you still have the old mind at work. So when we started giving people more initiative to make major changes, we changed an enormous amount and were able to give Mandela a story to tell yeah. about no excuse, guys, no saying you can't do this because it's too hard or you don't have enough black folks who can get to the top. No excuses. Yeah, no, that that's incredible. Wow, that, that's such a cool story. I think the reason that I brought Denise up is that she's working primarily with um, Silicon Valley companies. Oh, and yeah. those are also by being, you know, big tech companies, big apps, you know, yeah. Google, oh, all sure that stuff. Oh, I'm sure what she's doing is great. I'm just responding to you. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. And I, I'm sure I'm not articulating her, her right. work perfectly. Well, that's always a danger, too. It is. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm just sure disclaimer, check out Denise's book as well, Fusion. Um, yeah, when Eccles really wouldn't publish her book if it went good. So exactly. So I'll go and, get it. Yeah. Um, but the reason I brought it up ultimately is because those companies are such high impact, have such right. high impact on culture and exactly. how culture develops. Exactly. Like, that's why I think work about, with Google. Yeah, and Google obviously right. is like one of the biggest of all right. time. So, right. and I think that's another reason, or it is kind of ultimately the the overarching reason why you're working with businesses is because those people are so impactful, especially the leaders at the top. Right. But how those things funnel down They're into the apps and everything. Also, full of people who want to learn and change. Yeah. If you get inside of an educational institution, hierarchy, uh, whether it's um, upper higher education or lower education, you get tracked and you get in boxes and you have to fight for you know full professorships, or whatever. I find that really difficult because, but in business, there's a lot more freedom. Things break up, buy, merge, develop. I've done lots of mergers and divestitures. Mm -hmm. And in that process, there's always a window at which some things can change. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I see, I see it. It's not easier because you still have to create a way to do it, but there's more eagerness among yeah. people in business. So some, you find the few that will anyway. Yeah, yeah, of course. With all of this in mind, you mentioned that you have done research and you're writing another book right now where and you always you <laughs> you inspect you know scientists themselves and you look at the paradigms through which they are doing their thing and, and their own mindsets. 
I, in my mind, that is an example of educating properly. You're creating the resources to then, in a sense, re-educate people yeah. to understand this parad- paradigmatic way of thinking. Yeah. You're doing that. You know, there must be others doing similar things and, you know, doing that sort of institutional critique that results in this um, and the resources developed need to re-educate. But I would still argue that most of most of the thought leaders that are really impacting where education moves and how we think about education are looking through either like the behavioral or that next yeah. human paradigm. So that doesn't mean you give up. I know. So I what, what the hell do we do? So, so for <laughs> me, I always find, uh, I find people like the Chad Holidays of the world who you can tell, and Michael Bacher at Google, yep. who you can tell they have a much bigger idea. What was your, you know, don't, if you're trying to solve a problem you can solve in your own lifetime, you're thinking too small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love that. That, that was from our, our videographer Deontay today. I don't think it was his quote exactly. No, I've heard it before, but it's still brilliant. He said it to us. I just want to give him credit. (laughs) The, uh, yeah, the, um, the idea that I believe works is to find key people who believe that they have to learn to think differently. They have to be open to that. So that's one of the reasons I like write books to attract people to these ideas. I do videos. I do speaking. Uh, I mean, I don't like actually going out in public as much and doing it. I like being in my little nested communities with people I work with for a long period of time who are going to go change this. But I go do it because it becomes kind of like a screen so people can find this. You have to find, you don't need to change 100% of the people. There's some uh, thinking that it takes like 2% and that's my experience in a business. If I can get 2% of the people moving, it picks up momentum and it starts to change. So I think what each person here, you uh, and each person who listens to MentorBox and what we're doing is you find who you are, where you believe you your work could make the most difference. And then you find the people who are likely to really grow and change. Yeah. Because if what you're doing is trying to educate, advocate, push, proselytize, uh, tell people they're wrong all the time, you will have zero effect. They will reject you. But if you're trying to improve their capacity to think, you want to be in dialogue, you want to be in reflection. Now, find those people Mm -hmm. and create communities to bring that together. And you will bring about huge change. I know I have with my own life. Amazing. How about we give one last call to action for uh, your your books that you've written, uh, your websites and, and the offers that you're thrown out there um anything you want to invite well okay if people want to follow up and get uh more i mean as i said i write a lot of blogs a lot of podcasts uh i'm on other people's and most of those can be found on carolsanford.com um the business second opinion where i do a lot of critiquing of harvard business view and the kind of things we've been doing today in a lot of depth i will take paradigms and put them up against it say here's what you see you get those there um you can go to carol sanford institute and that's more my business website where what i'm offering are business opportunities for people in i bring collective businesses together 10 to 12 who stay together over three years and so if those interest you, that's on Carol Sanford Institute. I, dot, dot com? I, dot com. Yes, okay. thank you. And then uh, I have a summit website, which I work in conjunction with Babson, mm-hmm. where I'm a senior fellow for social innovation. And we do uh, an annual big summit and then quite a few things following up out of that that, again, bring together businesses. We also offer something called the Regenerative Business Prize, mm-hmm. and that'll be going public again. Uh, and it's on the Regenerative Business Summit dot com website and then there's the book the regen the current book still in in print are the regenerative business the responsible entrepreneur and the responsible business 
and my gosh, there's tons of video. If you want to go to Vimeo YouTube, you could never quit listening to me if you really wanted to. Yeah, <laughs> just Google her I, name, Carol Sanford. It, that's and just true. You'll get four pages. Take it stuff. all in, I guess. Yeah. That's what I would advise. And follow up with me at carol at carolstanford.com. And if you do and want a copy of that book chapter that I mentioned, tell me you heard this on MentorBox because it'll be for sale soon, but you can have it for free right now. Ooh, awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Carol. This was incredible. Um, I'm going to be reading the rest of your books as well now that we've had this talk. I'm really excited. Um, But thank you, everybody else, for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors, as well as all of our authors, teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring, and we can only do that through your help. So please, Help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.